What's up, church fam? Jonathan Chang here. Ashley Ebert here. And we just wanted to let you know that we've been praying together as a church for this past month, um, really for God's direction and how we will be effective for the gospel. Uh, and not just that, but also for the direction that we will go uh, in as a church. Mm -hmm. So we want to invite you here Wednesday, November 17th at 7 p.m. And we're just going to gather together as a church family to celebrate and really highlight the amazing things that God has done, not only over the course of Together We Pray, but what he's going to do moving forward. Um, and this is not just... Um you know, just for certain groups of people, this is for the whole church family. So all the grow groups, the student ministry will be here, men, women, kids, everybody is invited to just come together and just stand in awe of what the Lord is doing in this church body. Yeah, and we really want to make sure we all remember that this isn't just a time to pray in this concentrated time. We, as followers of Jesus, as a church family at Cypress Bible Church, we want to be committed to prayer, understanding that prayer is what really drives the work of the ministry. Prayer is what allows us to see how the Spirit moves in order for us, as I said earlier, to be effective in this world. And so on November 17th, 7 p.m., we look forward to worshiping with you all here then. Have an awesome day. stand together as we worship. Healer, awesome 
Thank you, Lord. I just want to welcome you today. Um, it's just me up here, so you guys are going to have to sing a lot more than you normally would, I guess. Um, but let's let's just take this time, the next next few songs, this whole service, to just reflect on just the peace that God gives us, the the assurance He gives us. And um, I mean, maybe we're like in a living room or around a campfire, and we're just playing some songs. But you guys sing out. And don't be afraid if you hit wrong notes. doesn't really matter. We're all family here. Just sing and worship the Lord with all you have. And uh, let's just do it together. Child of weakness. 
just watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. You sing it.
everybody's really singing. I don't normally hear it because I have these things in my ear and it's hard to hear the congregation, but this is it's a blessing to me. So <clears throat> let's sing this one together. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Here of salvation, purchased of God. This is 
Uh, this, these past few weeks, we um, have been going through a season of prayer, and we've been doing that corporately together, and we've been calling that series, uh, Together We Pray. And so if you didn't see the video before the service, there'll be another video right after the service. Uh, all of this will culminate in a prayer event that we're going to have, a, a gathering on November 17th at 7 p.m. Wednesday night here. And uh, so if you want to continue to pray with us, there are some information out in the commons. If you want one of the prayer books, uh, you can grab those. And today it is our privilege to be praying, uh, to be a part of God's work, both locally and globally. I'm not sure why they picked me to announce that, but uh, if you're not aware, I am the Go Pastor. And so as a church, we go on life-changing mission. We go locally, we go short, we go long. And so uh, as, a, as a Go ministry, we encourage all of our laborers to pray to the Lord of the harvest. And we usually do that at 10.02. You could also pray at 9.37 if you wanted to. Uh, both of the passages are the same. Uh, then, this is Jesus speaking, he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Uh, when we look at what God is doing right now globally around the world, it's, it's amazing. And he invites us to be a part of this, of this journey, to be a part of his mission. And so our problem as a church today isn't, isn't that we have a harvest problem, uh, it's that we have a laborer problem. And so we as God's people are being called into this mission. And so we as a church want to be, be mindful that we are equipping you for that work. Uh, to that end, we do have a couple opportunities coming up uh, for you to do that as well. Uh, on November 14th, we're going to have a gospel conversations training. Uh, this training is going to be geared to equip you with some basic tools to be able to share the gospel, uh, to communicate it clearly. And we've got the holiday seasons coming up, and this is a great time to think about how can I share with my friends, my family, my coworkers. Uh, Christmas season is going to be coming upon us too. Great opportunity to share the gospel. And this is a simple way to kind of bridge from where you're at into a gospel conversation. So we encourage you to be a part of that on November the 14th. So right after the service, we'll provide a lunch. We do have childcare, but you do need to sign up uh, for that. And then uh, our ongoing outreach initiative uh, this next Saturday is the second Saturday of the month. And what do we do on second Saturday? We do second Saturday, right? So we, we as a church, we go out and we engage our community in different uh, activities. Uh, working in apartment complexes, we do outreach, we do evangelism, uh, many different events that you can participate. So if you meet here at the church on Saturday at 10, we're usually done just shortly afternoon, so it's a short commitment. So we invite you this next Saturday to participate uh, in that. So as a church, um, we will pray together that God would work in us to be a part of his kingdom work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you desire everyone to know Jesus. Thank you for the privilege to be a part of your plan. Lead us as a church to have eyes to see 
and willing hearts to serve. Raise up men, women, and children to make disciples here and around the world. Show us how to be involved in your work and prompt us to do it. You are our Lord, and we will follow you. May your Holy Spirit give us the power to share the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Teach us to be your hands and feet to our local community. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand again as we sing one more song? I'm accepting you were condemned. I'm alive and well, spirit is within me because you died and rose again. See that again, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepting you were condemned. I'm alive and well, spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Let's sing this out together. Amazing love. Amazing love. How can it be to my king would die? For me, amazing love, and I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you. You know what I do. I honor you. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepting you were condemned. I'm alive and well, spirit is within me because, because you died and rose again.
Pastor, would you come? Last week, I uh, put down a security deposit on a house. And uh, turned out my bank didn't like that at all. And instead of just freezing that one transaction, they shut me out of my account. So uh, I spent uh, 62 minutes on hold with the fraud department. And at the end of 62 minutes, I got a recorded message that said, we're sorry, but due to high volume, our agents are too busy to assist you. Please call back on Monday. So I didn't have any access to all the money that I have in the world for Saturday or Sunday. Couldn't use my credit cards. Couldn't pay any bills. Fortunately, we didn't have any due at that point in time. Now, I'm neither poor nor wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. But for two days, the only money I had was the cash in my wallet from our most recent garage sale. We did okay there, too. Now, I would say I'm, I'm thankful to the Lord for keeping that out of my mind last weekend. So as I came and... and spoke the word of God to you last Sunday, both services. That was not on my mind at all because God uh, had a message for you that he called me to deliver. After uh, the second worship service last week, it did come back to my mind, and a couple of brothers prayed for me, and the bank let me back into my accounts on Monday morning, and for which I'm grateful. The theme this morning as I believe something God has called me to deliver to you as well. It, uh, it comes in our series from Ecclesiastes. We go through this book of the Bible uh, written by a man who had it all. I believe it was King Solomon who had all the money and the, uh, the, uh, the power that could do anything he wanted to search for meaning and significance in the life on this planet. 
And, and so this book is a, is a tremendous way to teach us. In fact, that's what he calls us. He calls himself the teacher, the teacher. And, and the theme this morning uh, focuses on words and wealth. The problem with words and wealth. We're in Ecclesiastes chapters 5 and 6 this morning. And, and here's the deal, that no matter how much or little you talk, no matter how much or little you possess, this has significance for you as it does for me. May the Holy Spirit speak into your life and my life over these next few minutes. Because as we go through the text, I want to point out four problems with words and five problems with wealth. And then we're going to conclude with the answer that uh, the Scripture here gives us to these problems of words and wealth. So starting out with words, four problems. First of all is insincerity. Verse 1, Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. So Solomon here is referencing public worship, what we've gathered here to do today. It's when God's people come together in Solomon's day in the temple. What did they do? They came to recite the word of God. They came to sing praise to God. They came to remember the works of God. And the problem is that you come into God's presence without honesty, authenticity, sincerity. Uh, this is, in fact, what Jesus referred to as babbling when he talked about it in uh, Matthew chapter 6, babbling. It's just you're reciting things that you're not thinking about. You're just going through the motions in some way. You are uh, reciting ritual but without heart. You're singing but without thought to what you're singing. You're, you're speaking without listening. And here's the point of, of what's going on. It's like, in doing that, you avoid hearing truth about yourself. Do you understand that that's how God wants to speak to you and to me today as we look into his word, as we worship together? That God wants you to hear from him about you too. Um, it's when we open our mouths, it's too often to self-justify, to excuse, to impress other people, to influence to whitewash. And instead, we must come in humility. We must come recognizing the, the majesty of the Almighty God. We must come seeking to hear from Him first and foremost because only fools, they're so busy talking, they're so busy reciting without thinking that they do not know that they do wrong. That's the first problem with word, insincerity. Second problem with words is carelessness, verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That word rash, we're not talking about something you need an ointment for. This is the, the Hebrew word behel, which, which uh, primarily means to be panicked or alarmed. But it also means to be in a hurry, to be hasty. And so what this is referring to is saying things to God in prayer or in worship without thought, without attention. That's what fools do. So even if you have a prayer list, let's say, and you just go through that, you just recite the words off that list, that, that's not, that, that's carelessness. 
carelessness. Hasty, impulsive, casual speak directed at God is foolish. You said, well, I'm saying good words. I'm saying religious words or I'm praying. Yes, but if it's careless, it's foolishness. The wise person comes before God thoughtfully and listens more than speaks. The fool can't control himself and speech pours out of his mouth. John Bunyan, who most famously wrote Pilgrim's Progress, but also a lot of other wonderful things. John Bunyan wrote this, in prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. And so that speaks to a warning against carelessness. The third problem with word words is excessiveness. Verse 3, overwork makes for restless sleep. Overtalk shows you up as a fool. Now, when you have a lot of cares on your mind, they tend to enter into your dream world and make you restless. And, and when you use a lot of words, it produces the emptiness of prayer. A heart that's attentive to God doesn't multiply words. Overproduction of speech doesn't impress God. If you think that verbosity in prayer or in worship has any positive effect on God, then you are living in a fantasy world. You're living in a dream world, a world of restlessness, empty dreams. Uh, this concept that I, that I get from people all the time, Christians, and don't know what they are, is that if we get enough people praying about this, then it's going to happen. If we just, so I'm telling everybody, I'm telling churches I've never even heard of, I'm sending emails to everyone I know so that they can pray for Aunt Millie, she'll be healed if we get enough people praying. Do you, do you understand that, uh, that prayer is not a numbers game? Prayer is not a numbers game. Effusive long-windedness is not the secret to effectiveness. Excessive words are a problem talk about this a lot. The Proverbs speak about it a lot. But instead, I'm going to move on to the fourth problem with words, and that's emptiness. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay your vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth lead you into sin. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. All right, so I've worked, I'm thinking particularly of two guys I've worked with that had this problem. They constantly and consistently overpromised and underdelivered. That's a terrible combination. You know, I, I sit down and tell them, it's like, the only thing you can do if you overpromise and underdeliver is repent. That's all you got left. Because no one's going to be happy. Oh, they might be happy in the moment when you tell them, oh, I'm going to do this. And then you don't do it. What are you going to do? All you have is an excuse. I said, what you need to do is follow through on your word. Or maybe even better, underpromise and overdeliver. Then they're happy. The two guys I'm thinking of never could get that lesson. They couldn't get past either making someone feel good about them in the moment and then coming up with an excuse later about why they couldn't do it. This is the warning that Solomon gives against that. 
Don't make resolutions and then not follow through with them. The word translated vow, or in some cases resolution, the Hebrew word is nadir, and it means to it's something that you've promised, and it can be you've promised to do this act of service, or you've, you've promised to make a sacrifice or give an offering, or you've promised not to do something anymore. You know, you've made, you make a, a resolution that, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop doing this. That's a nidare. That's a vow. And so understand it. It can be something as simple as, well, you, you promised to serve in some area. You say, well, I'll fill in that week. Or I'll, I'll put me on the schedule every fourth Sunday of every leap year. Whatever it is that you say. And then you don't show up. That's more serious than you think. Because God is involved. God is involved. Whatever promise you make, God is involved. In fact, just a little hint that you might not even see here, because certainly it talks about God through here, but it's a little bit less explicit where it says, don't say before the messenger that it was a mistake. That word messenger in Hebrew, mostly translated angel. There's a supernatural part in this. God is involved. So better not to make any vow at all than to speak words you don't fulfill. That, he says, is vanity. There's the word that's been occurring throughout the chapters so far, and it occurs throughout the book. Hebel is the Hebrew word, and it means empty, false, the nearest thing to zero. It's a mist. It's a vapor. When you say things and don't follow through, in the verbosity of your words even, it's a mist. It's a vapor. It's the nearest thing to zero. And all you do, your failure to keep your word shows a lack of respect for God not to mention the person that you don't keep your word for. People, why why do people make vows like that? Why do people make promises? Well, it's because they live in a religious dream world. They think that words are the same as deeds, and they are not. Pompous promises are no substitute for reverent awe. That's what we're called to, reverent awe. God is the one you must fear. So whatever words you say, you are looking ultimately to God. He's the one you speak to. Matthew 15, Jesus said that it's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean because it shows what's in your heart. So, These are problems with words. They're not all of them by any means. In fact, you read Proverbs, much of what what Solomon wrote, and you find many other problems with words as well. But this is a good sampling. And let's say you you need to watch your words. That's That's a problem here. Let me tell you the most important words that you must speak. They are, for example, found in Romans 10, 9, and 10. Is because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Those are among the most important words you can ever speak. And where does it begin? It becomes with your heart, and you speak from a heart that already believes and trusts, and you confess, you speak out, you say the same thing with your mouth. It's in your heart. And what is that which you believe? It is that God, the Father, loved us so much 
and we're separated from him, lost in sin, dead in our sins, born of this world, separated from the one who made us. And in his great love, God sent his perfect son into our world to save us. He sent him behind enemy lines. He sent him in flesh, incarnate. And Jesus lived the perfect life, sinless life, and then took the sin of the world, my sin, your sin, my failure, on his own body and was sacrificed on that tree. His blood poured out to pay the price for sin that I deserve to pay, to die the death I deserve to die, so that whoever believes, all who believe, all who put their trust in him, the one who God raised from the dead, will be saved. Now, that's a pretty confident statement there. Will be saved. And so the, the question with your words this morning, these are the most important ones. Do you believe in your heart? And if you confess with your mouth that this Jesus is who he claimed to be? Well, let me take you to the problems with words, uh, rather wealth, problems with wealth. The first one is corruption. Corruption. Verse 8. Don't be too upset when you see the poor kicked around and justice and right violated all over the place. Exploitation filters down from one petty official to another. There's no end to it. Nothing can be done about it. But the good earth doesn't cheat anyone. Even a bad king is honestly served by a field. So this is Solomon's pretty dismal worldview of a world apart from God. And that is that people will be abused. People will be mistreated. That doesn't mean you don't care about it. It means you don't try to stop it. No, no, no. That's just how things are. As people pursue money and power, other people are going to be mistreated and abused and taken advantage of and cheated and robbed. And it's even going to happen from government. You know what? Government is evil, but it's a necessary evil. It's a necessary evil. And because of, there's so many levels of bureaucrats, there's so many levels of officials and legislators, there will be corruption. You can't stop it. When you throw the bums out, they'll just be replaced by more bums. Instead of justice, you get red tape. And officials pocketing money that should go to the poor. See, when people are given the opportunity to enrich themselves by abusing political power, some will do it. That's what Solomon's saying. As many of you know, we lived in, uh, Amy and I lived in uh, Illinois for 10 years, Chicago area. The time we were there, 10 years, all right, we had two governors. Number one, number two. Both of them went to prison. Both of them. The first one went to prison, and the other, the other one got elected, and it's like, oh, well, he's got to be a good. No! Well, the first one's still in prison, the other one gets thrown into prison. This is the state of honest Abe Lincoln. Governors are in prison. And officials, he says, network to protect each other. So it's impossible to, to, to root out all corruption because that's how that works in this world, on this earth, apart from God. But he says, don't worry, no, no matter how dishonest the king is, you can still grow crops. 
and fields are going to produce even under bad government. So you can have a bad government, but you can still grow crops. So that's the first deal. Problem with wealth is corruption. People have their money and power. The second problem with wealth is dissatisfaction. Verse 10, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. So basically, the more you have, the more you want. And the more you have, the less you're satisfied. Eric Clapton, one of the great guitarists in rock history, he said this. He said, I was a millionaire. I had beautiful women in my life. I had cars, homes, and on a daily basis, I wanted to commit suicide. Not satisfied. Not satisfied. Harvard Business School published a study on thousands of millionaires. I read it this week. Uh, these millionaires, the people whose, whose wealth exceeded million dollars and sometimes much, much more than that. And they asked them to rate their happiness on a scale of 1 to 10. 10 being very happy. Um, none of them rated themselves a 10. Okay? And then they were asked, how much money do you need to get yourself to a 10 on the happiness scale? And all of them said they needed two to three times more money than they had. Isn't that interesting? Not satisfied, but they can see, oh, if I get there, then I'll be a 10. The insatiable desire for more is frustrating. And again, Solomon is, is pronouncing this love for money as hey bell, as vanity, as meaninglessness, a mist, a vapor. As 1 Timothy 6.10 says, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Not money itself. It's the love of money. One of the most misquoted Bible verses there is. So, problems with wealth. Corruption, dissatisfaction, number three. Responsibility. Verse 11. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? So the more you have, the more people will come after it, including the government, right? And the more you have, the more you realize it doesn't do you any good. That's what he's saying here. As money attracts things, it attracts human leeches and parasites and a swarm of hangers-on. Now back in the, uh, up, to, up through I think the early 1990s, now some of you weren't around then, but okay, MC Hammer was really hot back then, all right? Now he's just kind of a joke, the poor guy. But back then, he was like on top of the world. He was making $30 million a year. And uh, in a flash, it all disappeared. Um, and one reason, there were several reasons, but one reason was he had a staff and entourage of 240 people he paid full-time to do everything for him. Everything. 240 people. His payroll was over $500,000 a month month. So he had it, and then he didn't have it. And I think of the, uh, the Namad brothers, because I like art. I especially like Impressionist art. And the Ahmad, Namad brothers own a stockpile of, of modern and Impressionist art, and it's stored in a warehouse in Switzerland. It's stored. It's not, you can't see it. It stored how much, John? Just a couple paintings. 5,000 works of art. 
from Monet, Matisse, Renoir, Rothko, and many others. And it's worth over $4 billion. It's in a warehouse in Switzerland. And who gets to see it? Well, I assume the security guards and the Namad brothers. Wow. Incredible work stashed away from public view. The responsibility of caring for that brings us to number four, which is worries. Verse 12, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. And I know every time we see one of those, you say, well, you know, give me a shot. You know, just give me a few million and I'll let you know how it goes, okay? Not going to happen. Uh, basically, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. Wealth promotes insomnia and insecurity. The rich man stays awake worrying. What's he worrying about? How can I keep what I have? How can I get more? And the common worker, Solomon says, doesn't have that problem. Because he's exhausted from his honest labor and he sleeps through the night. So, I was on the phone. I'd have a fun week, all right? I've had a fun week. Um, I was on the phone with a woman trying to get information about a house she advertised for lease. From the time we said hello till I talked again was 30 minutes. And it was 30 minutes of her telling me all the houses she owns across the country and how some of them are now worth millions of dollars and how difficult it is to get a decent tenant and how hard it is to decide which houses to sell and which ones to keep and which ones to rent and which one to live in and how many more to buy. So at the 30-minute mark, I had to interrupt her and say, hey, I appreciate hearing about all this. I got a lot to do today. Uh, And in a month, I'm going to sell the only house I have, and I'm going to need one. Can I talk about renting yours? But I could tell I wanted to soothe her because she's eaten up with worry and concern about her. And I did not want to rent one of her million-dollar houses, just so you know. I mean, I did, but I couldn't. Worry and concern about all the stuff she has. Worries. Fifth problem with wealth, separation. Verse 13. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. So the more you have the more you have to lose. The more you have, the more you leave behind. And love of wealth often causes somebody to hoard even to the point of causing them all their suffering to themselves. It, it, it's not a secure basis for happiness since it's so easily lost. I had two friends, that they knew each other since they were boys. All right, I knew them later in life. And uh, at, when, they, when they grew up, they started a business together that became wildly successful. They made them both millionaires. And after being friends since they were boys in, in a business together for about 10, 15 years, 
it just all fell apart. Their friendship exploded. They had to divide the business and lose their wealth. That's what happens. And this rich man he talks about here spoiled his life twice over. First in acquiring the wealth and then in losing it with nothing to leave even for his children. But, but even if you never have a misfortune, even if you never do a bad dis- business deal, even if you never lose everything through embezzlement, we all experience separation from what we have. That's what Solomon gets to. Everyone experienced separation with all their possessions at death. Death is the final cancellation of misplaced human values. Now, please understand that Solomon isn't recommending poverty. And he's not recommending wealth. In fact, in Proverbs, he says, Lord, give me neither poverty or wealth. Because there are problems with both. Instead, the teacher is is warning against the love of money and the delusions that wealth can bring. And he, he cautions against chasing after the wrong thing in the search for happiness and satisfaction and meaning. And some of you will know the name Dr. Jordan Peterson. He's been somewhat uh, famous in the public eye for the last 10 years in particular. Uh, he has a, a, a very, he's a clinical psychologist, and, and uh, I, I think Peterson is worth hearing. Uh, I've read uh, his books. I, I've, I've read some articles. I subscribe to his YouTube channel. He's on other platforms. I think he's even on TikTok. And, and so you can, you can learn about uh, Peterson. I, I, I'm only saying this because there's, there's one little piece called uh, Stop Chasing Happiness. It's worth 10 minutes of your time. Stop Chasing Happiness on, on YouTube. Now, with this caveat, he believes in God or a God. His answers are not Christian answers. Why I'm saying this is because he sounds exactly like Ecclesiastes. In the face of frustration and meaninglessness for wealth and words, what's Solomon's answer? What's his answer? Well, here's, here's what he gives, verses 18 to 20. Then I realized it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. Now that's the last passage I'm going to read you, even though... Basically, I'm also covering chapter 6 here this morning. We're going to do two chapters because this really is the message of chapter 6 as well. What he sums up here, he basically repeats in chapter 6. Now, the the message that he gives is to accept and enjoy whatever God blesses your life with, whatever God gives to you, whether it's little or much. Whether God blesses you with a little or blesses you with much, you need to accept that and enjoy it. And that's a lesson that Solomon has already talked about in chapter 2. We covered that. He's already talked about it in chapter 3. He's talked about it here. And he's going to mention it at least three more times before the end of the book. And and so I'm just going to keep repeating that message to you as well. The teacher affirms that life on this planet apart from God is frustrating and unsatisfying. And so joy and satisfaction are only possible from the hand of God. Here, let me put it in these words. Enjoying whatever you have, little or much, is a gift only God can give. That's the message. Your ability to enjoy whatever it is is something that only God can give. He makes enjoyment possible in Christ. Now, from 2003 to 2005, Dr. Haddon Robinson was basically my boss. 
and most of you won't know him, but he, he's with the Lord now. Uh, he's a great professor. He wrote some great textbooks, uh, publisher, uh, and a wonderful preacher. And uh, I had, in the two years that we worked together, I had the privilege of interviewing him for a couple of articles. I edited a book with him, and I got to listen to some of his stories. And, and as he neared, I think, the end of his life, he, he talked about Ecclesiastes a fair bit. And so I heard some stories from Ecclesiastes, and, and, and one of them was he hadn't talked about a guy that, that he knew of who, who grew up poor and he had nothing, uh, and, and he often went hungry. And then later in life, he made a fortune, and he could afford anything he wanted, this guy. But the problem was he no longer had the ability to enjoy it. His taste buds were gone. Rich food gave him indigestion, and he suspected anyone who wanted to have any kind of relationship with him as being after his money. And Haddon said this. This is a quote from, from what he said. He says, has life ever seemed futile to you? You put on your best week of work, and on Monday you have to start all over again, and you come away wondering if any of it really matters. You get the house cleaned in the morning, and by the evening it's all messed up again. You do the dishes, you make the beds, and a month later you've got to do it all again. He's being funny there. The teacher, he's talking about Ecclesiastes, the teacher says, if you've got work to do, don't despise it. If you've got work to do to fill your days, you ought to get down by your bed in the morning and thank God for it. There have been times in my life when I've been too busy and other times in my life when I've not been busy enough and I'm here to testify that too busy is better. God's good and he gives you work to fill your days. Do you ever find life perplexing? Solomon says, don't let those clouds of questions so fill your sky that they blot out the good things God's given you day by day to make your life enjoyable. Enter into them. Enjoy them. God gives you food for your table. As he does, don't gulp it down. Enjoy it. If you have wine served to you and you enjoy wine, drink it well. Enjoy it well. Enjoy the gifts of God. Enjoy sex with the spouse God has given you. Enter into it. Live life to the hilt. In Old Testament theology, he says, it's not just a shame not to enjoy life. It's a sin not to enjoy it. If it comes to you from the hand of a good God, enter into it with thanksgiving and enjoy it. Seize the day. Live it to the hilt. Enjoy God's gifts. That's Solomon's message. Will you do that today? Whether you have little or whether you have much, enjoyment and satisfaction is possible through Christ. And most of all, Never take for granted the greatest gift of all, a Savior. Don't get tired of the gospel that through Jesus you have relationship with your creator, the one who loved you so deeply that he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Join me now in thanking him as we eat and drink in his memory. If you were able, trust that you picked up communion cup on the way in today. If not, feel free to go and get one. Because in a moment, we are going to remember the Lord in this way. And I encourage you now to just let's get through some of this awkwardness and open up that top, make all the noise that you need to to take the bread and maybe even open the next one. The first one is just the bread and the second one is the, is the cup. And, you know, we just talk about enjoying the 
food and the drink and all the good things of God. And this is hardly a feast in that sense, is it? But it's what it signifies. The goodness of God. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome at this table. If you are one who has put your trust in Christ, believed in your heart, confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then this bread and this cup is your reminder of that salvation. And you rejoice, you give thanks. But you know, before we say these words and we eat and drink, I want to give you a moment to do what I also need to do. And that is to just quietly confess. Where have I fallen short this week? Maybe even the words that I've said or not said. Maybe the way that I have used my money or viewed my money or my possessions. Whatever it is that God lays on your heart that right now, because if your faith is in Jesus, when you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive those sins and cleanse you from every unrighteousness. So let's just take just some seconds of silence and you speak to God. You and I will do the same quietly now. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. And he said to his followers on that night what he says to those of us who follow him to this day. This is my body. Take and eat. Then taking the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood spilled for the forgiveness of sin. It's the sacrifice of Christ that cleanses us. There's no other cleansing agent in this world that can do what the blood of Christ has done. And so in his memory, with thanksgiving, let us drink. Lord, we give you thanks for the precious sacrifice made on our behalf. May you receive the glory in Jesus' name. Would you stand again? We're going to sing one last song.
My ransom paid at the cross And I rejoice in my Redeemer Greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul I will trust in Him no other My soul is satisfied I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. And I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. My soul is satisfied. this benediction. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing 
so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you. Go in peace. What's up, church fam? Jonathan Chang here. Ashley Ebert here. And we just wanted to let you know that we've been praying together as a church for this past month, um, really for God's direction and how we will be effective for the gospel. Uh, and not just that, but also for the direction that we will go uh, in as a church. Mm -hmm. So we want to invite you here Wednesday, November 17th at 7 p.m. And we're just going to gather together as a church family to celebrate and really highlight the amazing things that God has done, not only over the course of Together We Pray, but what he's going to do moving forward. Um, and this is not just, um, you know, just for certain groups of people. This is for the whole church family. So all the grow groups, the student ministry will be here, men, women, kids, everybody is invited to just come together and just stand in awe of what the Lord is doing in this church body. Yeah, and we really want to make sure we all remember that this isn't just a time to pray in this concentrated time. We, as followers of Jesus, as a church family at Cypress Bible Church, we want to be committed to prayer, understanding that prayer is what really drives the work of the ministry. Prayer is what allows us to see how the Spirit moves in order for us, as I said earlier, to be effective in this world. And so on November 17th, 7 p.m., we look forward to worshiping with you all here then. Have an awesome day. Good. 